on the viewpoint. Mr. Glenn Mayer, good evening. Are you going to be sending your one-minute video clip to sothepictures.co.za so that you can have the wedding of your dreams? <laughs> Not anytime soon. The farming is keeping us quite busy at the moment. That's good news, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Tell us what's happening there. Well, um, Sungezo, and uh, thank you to you and to your listeners. Um, uh, I'm actually now at the uh, mushroom farm that we have here in Weinberg, uh, ideally situated between Sanson and Alexander. And what an interesting conversation you were having with your listeners just before I came on, speaking mm. about spatial planning. Mm. So um, when we started the Urban Farming Cooperative a year ago, one of the questions that we asked ourselves was, how do we bring agriculture into urban areas? And um, we looked at innovative ways in which people could farm in fairly small spaces and came across two uh, concepts. One being converting 200-250 litre plastic drums that are used in the the food processing industry and turning those into vertical planters. So meaning that you can plant between 60 to 80 plants in a 600 by 600 millimetre area. And then the other thing that we came across, which is the mushroom farm that I've just mentioned now, was um, as a result of wanting to bring plant-based proteins onto plates. So we know that Mm. um, in terms of cognitive development, how important micronutrients are, which obviously come from leafy green vegetables. But as we started working uh, throughout this year, we realized that the situation with food scarcity in this country is so dire that we needed to also bring proteins onto plates. And that's basically where we came up with the concept of the mushroom farming. Yeah, this is a non-profit working with Parolees to equip them with farming skills and to create an ecosystem that addresses food scarcity in the country. Specifically, how do you get to a point where you're working with Parolees on this way? Well, um, just to be quite honest, um, I um, do have a criminal record. Um, I was sentenced in 1998 and um, was incarcerated until 2007. And uh, when I came outside, I managed to build a fairly successful career for myself in the uh, construction industry um, over, over many, many years. Um, and then, unfortunately, in about 2019, um, I was going through the process of a divorce. And um, suddenly, this uh, specter of being an ex-offender was um, used against me. And uh, for the first time, I really understood what it was like to be marginalized and to be uh, a bit of an outcast in society. So it was a proper um, check of my, uh, my privilege. And um, I then uh, st- started researching, especially now with COVID, um, food scarcity. I was watching a um, SABC uh, news broadcast in about March, and this African mom was asked if she had food for her and her child for the coming weeks. And she took from under her bed a 25-litre bucket of maize meal, with a handful of maize meal, really it was, and an empty jar of peanut butter. And um, she had a toddler and probably about the same age as my own son. And it absolutely broke my heart to know that this was the only food that she had for her and her child. And that there was absolutely no certainty in the coming weeks where she would get food from. And so, um, like I mentioned, in in 2019, when uh, this thing of being an ex-offender was brought up against me, um, I really struggled to find employment. You know, I found uh, doors being closed on me, people from my professional network who hadn't known that I'd been incarcerated and who I'd worked with successfully for many, many years. And suddenly, by the virtue of that fact, suddenly felt differently. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, you have the stigma that you need to to deal with. And so it was very unfortunate. Um, And, um, you know, I I found myself having to make decisions. Um, Prior to my child coming to visit, um, you know, I had to, I was a very, very tight budget, almost no income. And um, so I'd start cutting meals out. And I'm a vegetarian. And as much as I think it's good for the planet, the truth is I just couldn't afford to eat meat. 
And um, so, you know, I was cutting meals out before my son would come to visit me. And then when he was there with me on Friday, Saturday and Sunday, you know, I'd make sure that he had a plate of food first. And uh, when he went to bed, I'd, I'd, I'd eat whatever was left over. And it doesn't make me a special person. I think this is what any parent would do. And unfortunately, this is the reality of millions of parents across this country. You know, there's more than 2 million children that have no idea where their next meal is coming from. They go to bed hungry. And, um, you know, just the statistics in terms of um, the children that die of malnutrition in this country. In a democratic dispensation, we have up to 15 children a day dying of, of malnutrition. It's, it's absolutely horrific. And so, you know, we, we saw, I think, this um, come to a head now in the recent protests where, you know, the shops were looted. And as much as some people want to focus on the TVs and the appliances that were being carried out, the fact, that, the fact of the matter is many, many of those people were looking just at making sure that they had food. And um, that's a very, very scary thing. What's even scarier in that, I think this has just taken a completely different direction to what I was thinking was going to do, and I appreciate, absolutely appreciate your honesty, and I think this is as good an account that you can give just as to the value of the urban farming cooperative that you have founded and are a director of. What is worse about everything that you have said is what you have not said. Juxtapose everything that you have said against the fact that in this country we're talking about something like 10 million tons of food that goes to waste. In other words, it goes the entire production process, agricultural process, distribution mm. and retail to one's fridge, table or cupboard mm. and simply returns to earth untouched yes. in a world where we are talking and we've just recently learned from the United Nations um, World Food Program that it has actually for the most part been underreported. Something like as much as 2 billion tons of food go to waste. There clearly then is a discrepancy between the economic process of food and the social demand for food and there are key conversations that should be taking place but are not taking place. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, if you look at our export um, industry as well, I mean, we managed to, I've been very, very fortunate despite having a criminal record to be able to travel to uh, Germany as well as to Norway. And, um, you know, every single item on the shelves in Norway has a sticker of origin. So, you know, you, you see the bananas are coming from Guatemala, you see the kiwis are coming from New Zealand. And so we, we're exporting food. We're exporting food in a, in a society in which we have millions of people that are going hungry that just don't have access to food. And, that's, and that, again, is why it's so important for us to look at ways to bring agriculture into the urban settings. That's the value then, in, I mean, in relevant part, at least for this conversation, just to sort of initiate a, a different culture, if you will, in terms of how we ought to engage the question of subsistence farming. The mm -hmm. value of your agricultural schools and agriculture as a subject, not at high school only in your technical schools, but as a subject in your traditional boys' schools on the other side of the M1. We're talking about schools yes. being bishops and schools in Alexandra yes. to teach young children how to effectively use what is available available to them yes. for the generation and production of their own food, including these sort of maize meal sacks, 50 kg sacks, where you can just fill them up with soil and poke holes on the sides and plant yeah. your carrots and your spinaches. It is, in relative part, a low-hanging fruit, but for whatever reason, doesn't get the traction. Mm -hmm. 
Well, so um, we, we support, for example, a very, very interesting initiative in Cape Town, uh, Factorton Primary School, where the principal, Mr. McAvoy, uh, grows um, in the courtyard of the school using uh, passive aquaponics. So he has a flow bin of tilapia fish, which he drains twice a week, and he uses that water, which is obviously nutrient-rich now from mm-hmm. the water products of the fish, to then grow leafy green vegetables, which in turn he uses in the, um, uh, the soup kitchen or the, you know, the, the, the feeding scheme at the school. And what's beautiful about this is that as the children leave their classrooms, they walk into this uh, beautiful garden that this, this principal has set up without any sort of agriculture background. And it's just an absolutely amazing experience. So we've tried to recreate that at Krugersdorp Prison where we have 12 of our vertical planters in the education section courtyard in the prison. So within the prison, we have a 960-plant garden, which the inmates are able to attend to. And um, we've shown them, for example, how to propagate seedlings, how to manufacture the drums as well. So, you know, um, we definitely, definitely need to bring this to the forefront in schools. And there's a beautiful, beautiful... um, It's a a beautiful experience in terms of working with plants and and taking something from a seed to a seedling to something that you can actually harvest and eat. And so um, in as much as we speak about food security, um, you know, you you would always need to purchase your staples. But we could definitely be doing a lot more in terms of growing um, herbs and and, um, uh, leafy greens, for example, which augment the diet and and just add flavor to the plate and a little bit of uh, variety to the diet and, and so that's really what we're trying to do and definitely want to look at getting involved in more schools. It will certainly inculcate a different culture of how we engage the environment at large. That's a value point. This is the final question I want to ask because it is a thought that visited me just today. I was at the robots and you know exactly what you encounter when you're waiting at the robots before mm-hmm. the light turns green. There's somebody at your window who just makes you check your privilege mm-hmm. against his or her poverty. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of public space. For instance, any South African highway where there's an interchange, there will be enough ground where if you had a communal garden project, the very person who is standing at the robots, if he or she was able to or otherwise in a position to contribute one's labor to some sort of urban space, and there's plenty of urban space in this country where you could have such community gardening projects for the purposes of attending and addressing food security. What are your thoughts in regard to that and how perhaps could we get the sufficient momentum to lobby the interest groups that ought to obviously be participants in that? Because I can almost just about guarantee you that there's no way that movement would not be acceptable as a partner here on the broadcast platform SAFM because, of course, this is public interest radio. Absolutely. So we, we are definitely um, looking at getting a meeting with Ms. Uh, Minister Lamola in terms of the Department of Correctional Services. So our work, working with parolees, we know that all offenders need to be, or when they are released, need to do 16 hours of community service per month. So never mind the suburban moms or dads that maybe want to get involved. You know, we have a, a tremendous resource of people that uh, we are busy training at the moment in correctional centres like Leocorp, uh, Krugersdorp and uh, Polsmoor. And the vision there is to turn them into food stewards so that when they are released, they have the necessary skills to be able to run community-based gardens like that. So you are 100% correct. You know, in a lot of the townships that we go into, where we work, for example, with the Kimmelenk Foundation and Dipsworth, um, you have these abandoned tennis courts. We could very easily turn those into uh, grow houses as well. So there's many, many opportunities. We just need to be having conversations with the right people, with big uh, corporates who are able to, um, to, to spend and to invest and then you know, generally have to bring the community into this. I think there's no conversation that we can have about equality in South Africa unless all people sitting at the table have a full belly and in that sense over there are equal. Fantastic. Let's leave it there. Thank you so much for your story.
your truth that much more. Glenn Mayer, thank you so much for your time. Parting shot before we go to news with Modubi, the one thing that I can absolutely corroborate just from this conversation is the most creative space or one of the most creative spaces in this country is not where you think it'll be. Go to a prison, speak to prisoners. They will tell you where the fault lines in society are. Perhaps if they were not caught, some of those fault lines might not exist. It is a center for creativity, and I had, if you will, the opportunity, privilege to visit prisons in 2014 whilst clocking at the Concord. It is an eye-opener. If you can, do yourself that favor. Go to a prison, sit down, and just listen to them. 21 hours, 53 seconds. Motubi Mikhali Mele with the news.